Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Booze Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Ollie. And this week we're going to do a little different, things a little different. My bad. of information to get through yeah it's gonna be a long one um i tried to cut it down oh okay i did cut it down because it was like 14 pages and we're now at 10 but it's lengthy pages so so if you are a listener who enjoys chit chat i know me personally i always skip through chit chat if i'm listening to other podcasts but we are gonna save that until the end because some of the content in this episode I'm assuming is going to be a little rough. A lot of rough. A lot yeah. of rough. I, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, and I edited it down as much as possible for y'all, but there's still going to be some stuff in there. So if you guys have no idea what we're talking about, I'm going to be doing part two of my Georgia Tan episode. And if you guys haven't listened to part one, you're going to want to listen to part one because you're going to be a little lost because I'm just jumping straight into it. So let's do here it. Here we go. All right, and I will give out the trigger warnings when we get there. They're not to like page eight, so (laughs) we're pretty good right now, but they're going to be in there, and I'll be sure to give you guys a heads up. So my resources for part two is, again, Baby Thief, Insider, Orlando Sentinel, Wiki, Southern Fried True Crime, and a few other articles that I will quote and mention in here. I think we've used, or I've used, uh, Southern Fried True Crime before, and they are awesome. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and her her accent is, oh, it's so relaxing. I love it. <laughs> okay, so last week we left off with Georgia beginning to kidnap children, and I left you guys at a big cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Well, so give a little recap. Into- so we talked about, the ba- talked about the baby farms, and you gave two examples of women who have done horrific things when it comes to, um, like, adoption and... Well, I guess back before what adoption is now mm-hmm. how children kinda, suffered through that yeah and I kind of laid out how awful children were treated back then and immigrant children and homeless children and single parents so that all that's just going to come back to how Georgia Tan got away with everything that she got away with mm-hmm. so I just wanted that first episode was all me just setting down how this happened and how this was able to occur. That was the pregame to this nasty, nasty episode we're going to get to. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so last week I left off with Georgia beginning kidnapping children. And we're just going to dive into the very first account of her actually kidnapping a child. So one spring morning, she drove her Model T to a cabin in Jasper County. Inside sleeping was a very young pregnant Rose Harvey. Rose was widowed and also suffered from diabetes, and she also already had a two-year-old son named Onyx. Georgia, seeing that Rose was poor, lured her son into into her car who was playing outside. Her father then signed papers stating that Rose was an unfit parent, thus allowing Georgia to adopt out Onyx to a man named Rufus Raspberry. 
which is a weird name to begin with, but Rufus Raspberry. It doesn't even sound like a real name. It doesn't. So it's <laughs> yeah. like a fake name, a really bad fake mm-hmm. name. Now Rose tried and fought to get Onyx back, but because George's father was the judge, there was just it, there was no point. There it was to no avail. So she mm-hmm. lost Onyx, and on, Onyx was adopted out. And just to have your son stolen while you're sleeping and then find out that he's now being adopted out, I can't even imagine what what that was like. And that that's that was even possible at the time. It was legal. It was perfectly fine. Because her daddy signed off on paper stating that she was an unfit mom, and that's oh, that. That's so sad. It's nuts. So Georgia eventually did, did get kicked out of Mississippi and Texas for her behaviors, but she found her home in Memphis, Tennessee. There she became the executive director of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. And as I stated last episode, in the early 1920s, adoption was just not common. People were scared of mental illness running in families and even the background of families' religions from where a baby came from. So there was just all this stigma of, is something wrong with this child? I don't know its background. I don't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. And to put this stigma into perspective, in 1924, the Boston's Children's Aid Society, not the one that Georgia worked at, another one, which was one of the largest in the U.S. at the time, only arranged five adoptions for that year. In 1928, four years later, Georgia arranged over 200 adoptions that year. So huge, huge jump. Yeah. So you're probably wondering how the heck did she, she manage this, right? I was going to ask that, but I knew you got it covered. <laughs> <laughs> so fucked up as it is, children came with a guarantee of satisfaction for the first few months of placement. What does that mean? So you know how you buy something at Walmart and it doesn't fit and you just give your receipt and you exchange it or get your money back? I I just want to know who out there is 100% satisfied with the child that they brought home, adopted or their own. Like, children are a blessing, yes, I'm sure, but also a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I apparently, she prided herself by saying that all her placements always worked because she went through a thorough process of making sure it was the perfect fit, which she didn't. That was all bullshit, but I think she hid behind this guarantee of satisfaction Mm -hmm. so that parents just went for it. So she also marketed them as a blank slate that you could turn into whoever you wanted them to be. While somewhat true to a point is problematic because you can only force a child up until one point to be the way you want them to be. Exactly. Yeah. And in order to do that somewhat it takes a lot of time nurturing love care and attention like you like you or said fear. that or what or fear or fear yeah like you said i'm sure it's true to some extent but not completely one incident of that backfiring is from an account from a victim and baby thief and it is recalled that her adopted mother began screaming at her when she discovered that she had scoliosis. She spat at her saying, I spent a lot of money on you. You're such a disappointment. Had I known that this is what you turned into, I would have never picked you. That's what I was going to mention before. Like the satisfaction guarantee and, you know, this flawless process. Like what did that mean for children who had a disability or, you know, needed extra care? Um I guess you answered that question. People were pissed. Yeah, and Georgia was very strict on who she kidnapped and who she took. That mm. she definitely tried not to get children with disabilities. She she handpicked every single child. 
So if someone ended up getting scoliosis later, scoliosis later on, that's not something that she would have searched for, mm-hmm. would have known to search for, it would have been prominent as a baby. So Yeah, she just wouldn't have picked that child. Yeah, if she had known. Mm-hmm. But So all of these adoptions needed to be approved by, ju- by judges, and some approved up to a dozen a day when her business started booming. And Camille Kelly was her favorite judge. Kelly would end their parental parent rights and transfer custody to Georgia. Didn't care. 20% of the kids that Georgia had came from Kelly. Jeez. Which is just staggering. Wait, you said so 20%, how, right? 20% oh, okay. of all the children yeah. throughout all the years of her running her, I guess, business. I hate to call it a business adoption agency. I, I don't know what to call it. Well, she did treat it as business. She charged mm-hmm. people money for these children. And in her eyes, these children were commodities and replaceable and just a means to make money by yeah and we'll get into how much she charged later on but so i bet you're wondering how the custody transfer worked because a parent needs to sign off right Mm-hmm. okay so i'm going to kind of put this in modern terms like if this was to happen now during covid so say a family with a children of three files for benefits due to losing their job to covid Hidden within the paperwork for their benefits would be something stating that for them getting these benefits, they would also be giving up parental rights to said children. Maybe it's in small text, but it somehow snuck into the documents. And you also want to keep in mind that back then, not everyone could read. And even now, we don't read everything we sign. I mean, those terms and conditions for Apple, I've never read them, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I think they've done studies on that before. Like, how many people actually read them compared to hit just accept and in these studies they put wild things like i don't know like you're signing over your dog or something dumb and they're just clicking 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 away so these this was hidden in the terms and conditions basically yeah and and also people couldn't read so if a judge or state employee is asking you to sign paperwork to get benefits or to help your family you're gonna trust them Mm -hmm. and remind us me and the listeners what year is this again uh we are between the 1920s 1930s wow so so maybe well well not maybe a century ago 100 years ago yeah and then there's some more recent stuff Uh. we'll get to that (laughs) but yeah so back then i mean not not everyone read not everyone you know read in between the lines it was just even now we trust people when they're like, oh, sign here. Like when I bought my house, they're like, sign here, sign here. I was like, okay, mm-hmm, whatever. Me Not too. reading thousands of documents. <laughs> so, and one example of this happening was with Mary Long. At age 15, Mary lived on a farm with her four siblings and her mother who was dying of cancer. And her mother was widowed, so it was just her siblings and her mom. Her mother asked the state welfare department to place the children in temporary homes until relatives could come in from other states to take care of the children because she was so ill she couldn't look after them. Instead, one of the employees decided to take the children to Kelly instead, who then signed them all over to Georgia. And Georgia only wanted the youngest sister. So when they dropped off the others at an orphanage, Georgia then kidnapped the youngest sister, throwing little Bessie into a waiting limo. Mary screamed after Bessie and begged the nuns to tell them where Bessie was being taken, and they just told her Georgia was flying her out to be adopted. Oh, my God. And that's just how it went. She just came and snatched them right up. Mm-hmm. She just didn't care. She's like, I want this one. This one's going to sell. That's it. I don't care about the others. Oh, wow. It reminds me of the, I guess, what, the first episode? One of the first episodes in The Witcher? 
where she just comes and buys what's her name (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) uh let me see so you're probably wondering okay someone might have had to have alerted authority someone might have had to someone with power had to have known and had wanted to stop it right i'm assuming these are uh, i hate to say it but like powerless people people do who don't have the education to read people do who don't have connections to have those protections set in place right Mm -hmm. that's part of it too but some did manage to get judges so other judges and other people knew of this happening in the city but because she also provided children to the wealthy and powerful and gave them bribes they just didn't care Mm -hmm. so when a member of the tennessee state legislates grandchild was stillborn georgia tan stole and produced a new infant that same day oh my god they just got a replacement mm-hmm. the woman was still anesthetized and had no ch- had never even had a chance to meet her stillborn baby so when she ro- woke up she had no idea that the child wasn't even hers she just thought that that was her baby that she had just birthed but she didn't find out eventually i don't even know if she found oh out they just god. kind of breezed over it so <laughs> and i'm sure that's something they'd want to keep hush hush mm-hmm so it's, uh, it's uh, I can't even imagine. By 1929, Georgia had too many babies to place, so she had to get creative. She teamed up with Ada Gilkey. She was a reporter for the Memphis Press Seminar, and they had plans to make these children irresistible. Ew, I don't she like tried to, that. No, I'm just wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get real grossed out reading some of these quotes, so... She tried to coin them off as the next hot thing. So you know during Christmas how there's always that one toy that kids want. Like a couple of years it was those Hatchimals, those big giant mm-hmm. eggs with the creatures inside. Yes. And then when the Wii came out, everyone went nuts for the Wii. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what she did with these babies. Oh my god, I fucking hate this. So they created ads for babies around Christmas time. Uh, Christmas babies as she called them. And some of the ads were... <clears throat> well, how do you think these ads went first of all? Uh, I mean, I almost Googled them, but <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it right away because <laughs> I'm curious. Um, but I also don't want my thoughts to go there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're not going to go there. No, there? I'm, I'm keeping okay. it right here in okay. holy land. All right, here we go. Want a real-life Christmas present? Well, here's your chance. For 25 children ranging from ages 3 months to 7 years, children will be presented to many lucky families Christmas Eve. The press seminar is making special arrangements with Georgia Tan to place these babies. Okay, and another ad from November 1930th, which makes my skin fucking crawl. I'm not going to say this in like a cutesy tone. A solemn little trick with big brown eyes, 5 years old and awful lonesome. Yeah, your face. <laughs> That's yeah. terrible. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And then a December 1935 ad read, Yours for the asking, how would you like to have this handsome little boy play catch with you? How would you like his chubby little arms to slip around your neck? His name is George and is yours for the asking. Whoa. Oh, that is so crazy. And it did. And it was totally fine with people. Mm-hmm. They, they thought it was so cute mm-hmm. because it was these cute pictures of babies on there. and It sounds marketed two predators yep Mm -hmm. (sighs) so the ads were so successful she would sell out 
which meant that she had a long list of future clients, and the Christmas baby success stories became newspapers' biggest articles. And because of that, other newspapers began running her ads. By 1935, Georgia had placed babies in all of the United States and four other foreign countries. Do you have any examples of what a success story is? I don't, but they were just a lot of pretty much, in the book, it was more of, this baby's great for me. It's a great match with my family. Uh, they went off to get a degree. Just stories like that. Mm. Of them blending perfectly with this family. Hmm. Um, so she became rich beyond belief selling all these babies, and she made millions. Back then, adoptions only charged an operation fee, which was very low. But she charged fees for transport, for her employees, and for placements. And she had checks made out to her not the aid society that she ran which mind you she was still running the aid society so they were also paying her on top of these extra checks that she was getting so she she charged three installments for children the first installment installment was for 168 for california 228 for new york and other areas were between these figures and the next installment which was due at delivery for california it was 360 dollars and in new york 268 the third installment that was to come after that for California was $731 and for New York $766. Which, even now, I'm like, oh, that's a lot. I'm sure with the inflation, was, I can't imagine how much she, that money actually was back in that day. It was $11,000 per baby. 11000 That's a lot, yes, but how much is adoption now? It's... I was looking into that because Matt and I have always talked about adoption and fostering, and I believe, oh my gosh, you're looking at anywhere from like five thousand to ten thousand. Okay, so it's a, on the higher end of the of the spectrum. Yeah, adoption is not cheap at all. No, especially if you want a younger, like a baby. Mm-hmm. But the ultra wealthy were charged up to ten thousand, and in today's money, that's a hundred and forty thousand per child. That's a house. Wait, say that again. <laughs> My mind, here was what she said, and here is my brain that understands it, and it just went whoop. (laughs) So the ultra-wealthy, with your installments, were charged up to $10,000, and in today's money, that's $140,000. Wow. I get, how did, I I don't know if you have the answer, but were the wealthy people just okay with this? They're like, okay, I have money, here you go. Pretty much. I think they had more than they knew what to spend with, and they wanted a child for whatever reason and they just didn't even blink Mm -hmm. so and there was no and also there was no requirements or qualifications you just needed money so she had no care for the child and she just wanted to make a profit so maybe someone who had awful intent and had a history and couldn't do it the normal way they wouldn't even think twice about paying the price for a child oh my god if epstein were alive back in that day yeah i can't no nope Rose. So because, yeah, I know. Because things were booming and she became set on profit, she created something called roundups. And roundups were fucking awful. So she got deputies, judges, court employees, anyone with power to join her. And with papers already signed in hand by Judge Kelly, they would go to homes and just take children. Didn't even matter. Mobile homes, regular homes, boat homes, whatever. They would just take, take anywhere they saw a child. They're like, this is not my child. And most of the time, she would only take babies and toddlers that were the most marketable. For example, blonde babies. So, thank God I'm not blonde. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, but I was hella cute. I was too. 
And that was a chunky baby. Like, I don't know if they would be able to pick me up and run fast <laughs> enough with me, but I'm pretty sure I could have been marketed well. I know. I always, my mom always had me in these cute-ass little pigtails. Oh, I had that Dora the Explorer bowl cut. Like, that wasn't cute, but my rules were cute. <laughs> so, uh, where did I leave off? Uh, so, the cut was typically at five years old, and she was never questioned by any officials on why she would only take the youngest child most of the times. And when she did abduct older children, it was for specific requests or orders. We're going to get into another firsthand account. So, 31-year-old Grace Gribble was widowed when her husband, a fireman, was electrocuted and died, leaving her to raise six children. Grace had a social worker named Sarah who would often come check up on Grace and her family, but Grace didn't know Sarah also worked with Georgia. Sarah tricked her into signing documents, stating to Grace that she was signing paperwork to guarantee free health care for all her children. Which, it's a social worker. Why would you question that at all? You would trust them. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't think twice about my social worker doing me wrong if I had one. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, she signed away all three of her <gasps> youngest children for adoption. As Grace begged her to stop Sarah, Sarah was quoted saying, we have an or- order for a boy this age and type, as she loaded them, loaded up all her youngest children. Oh, my God. Dis- oh, just wait. Despite taking her plea to court and fighting for over seven years, she was denied the right to get her children back. The, city, the court cited her poverty as a good reason why they should not be returned to her and that they had a better life even though one of her sons was returned by that guarantee was sent to live in foster care for seven years and then was adopted by alcoholics. Oh, my God. So he was returned, but Mm -hmm. he wasn't even returned to his actual mother. No. He was just thrown in foster care. Jesus. And then he was stuck in that system for seven years. His mom couldn't get him. And once he was adopted, because it was two parents in a household, even though they were alcoholics, they wouldn't give him back. Wow. And Georgia almost always won all of her court cases because no one wanted to rip a baby from a wealthy household with two parents. It was kind of like, your child has a better life, Mm -hmm. tough shit. So, Georgia also had a relationship with Edward Hull, Boss Crump, which also sounds like a fake name. All of these are probably Uh, aliases. (laughs) (laughs) And this relationship allowed her to get away with even more because he was on and off a mayor from Memphis and ran the political scene. And so he protected her from investigations, and he worked with the cops and let them assist her in kidnappings, which meant her record was clean and and reports were swept under the rug. All people saw was a great woman who adopted out babies and had all those Christmas success stories and was just the pride, Mm -hmm. the pillar of the community, you know. All right. So as her popularity grew, she began to work with celebrities. She adopted out to Joan Crawford. Her twins, Kathy and Cynthia, came from Georgia. She provided babies to Lana Turner and Paul Buck, who was a governor, and a lot of these babies actually became prominent and famous. Ric Flair was also adopted out as one of her stolen babies. And for those of you who don't know who Ric Flair is, he's the WWE guy um, with that meme. Your dog spots another dog, and it's a clip of him going, woo, woo, Wait, is it? which I sent you. Now can I see it? Yeah, you can see it now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's the blonde guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I will link that audio if I can find like an audible thing to throw in here so you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm glad I got you to smile. For I a know second. that was a nice <laughs> little uh, break. Because at first I'm like, yeah. 
Sam, you could just show me a picture of the sky, but that was a lot better. Than a yeah, picture. that was better. You needed it that. Because my face <laughs> would have been stuck with this awful look all night long. Now, because she wanted to keep things clean, she fought. She, she fought. <laughs> she fought. <laughs> she fought hard to have records locked away. Now, you can get adoption records pretty easily in some states, but even now, some are just locked down and so difficult to get a hold of. And that's because of fucking Georgia Tan. She wanted everything locked down so that things were impossible to get a hold of so people couldn't track down where where these babies' families were from. So, if you're having trouble getting your birth history, you can blame that bitch. (laughs) So, now... There were laws at the time in the U.S. on adopting out babies. Like, you had to reside in the state that you adopted a baby from. But she found loopholes because of who she knew, and she simply just didn't care. Mm -hmm. And by mid-1930s, social workers who didn't like Georgia did begin to complain, but Boss Crump still protected her. So, in 1937, she got a law passed that allowed babies to be adopted out to different states. So, that somewhat was legal now, even though she had already been doing it. But regardless, the aid society didn't have a license from the state, so no matter what law was passed about sending babies to other states, everything was illegal because they didn't have a license to even be able to adopt out children. But because, like I said, she was the mm-hmm. pillar, no one doubted her, no one cared, no one said and anything, she, and she knew all the big And heads. she had already built this reputation, reputation mm-hmm. of the go-to person for children. Exactly. And... To make things worse, she lowered and changed children's ages and falsified birth certificates. So for little infant babies, she would change birthdays by weeks and months, and she would even remove years from older children just to make them seem smarter or brighter for their age. Wow. Yeah, so these kids don't even know how old they actually are because she just went around and changed everything. And the parents didn't know what they were getting either. Exactly. She... So she would search orphanages and she wouldn't steal from every household. But I mean, she was just so crappy. And eventually she went for maternity wards and hospitals. So she would go to hospitals. She would hire people to watch these birthing mothers. And as soon as these mothers gave birth, she, according to George Lovejoy, who was actually a doctor at one of these hospitals and witnessed this, her employees would go in, give mothers who just gave birth documents to sign. And, of course, you just gave birth. You're tired. You're gone through mm-hmm. so much. You might be on anesthetics or who knows what. And they just signed away the rights to their baby without even knowing wow. it. Wow. Which, George Lovejoy, as a doctor, why wouldn't you kick them out of your fucking hospital? Why, yeah, why would you let allow that to happen? Especially if you knew it was happening and you're now quoted in a book. <laughs> Saying you knew it was happening, you know? I guess they didn't have a code of ethics to abide by. Right? Don't they have, like, an oath or something? You would think, or they're supposed to. So by 1950, 90% of single women put their babies up for adoption because it was so shunned upon. Women were even blindfolded when giving birth so they couldn't see their babies and be tempted to keep them. Like, there was just such a horrible stigma. And we talked about it first episode, too, just how awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, even with mothers giving up their babies to Georgia Tan, not all babies were placed in homes. So, one baby in 1929 wound up at the University of Tennessee as a ward of the Home Economics Department, serving as a flesh-and-blood textbook for students. And they changed his name. What? Mm-hmm. And they just, oh, this is so fucked up. They changed his name from Richard House to Richard Practice House. Oh, like dehumi- dehumanizing him. Yeah, like he's just a practice thing 
for your students to learn with and mm. yeah okay so I know I hinted this last episode and this is where the trigger warning is going to start coming in but unfortunately Georgia abused children and it's in many different ways so right now we're going to talk about the living conditions once I'm done with the living conditions I will give you guys another trigger warning for the next subject because if you're sensitive with one thing but you want to listen I just want you to be able to skip through when you need to so children who were abducted didn't get to live with Georgia in her big fancy house where she made millions they were stuck for weeks months or even years in boarding homes and these weren't actual homes they were like two bedroom apartments filled with over 10 plus kids oh my god and it was even recorded at one point that someone noted that in one of the apartments six infants were crammed in one crib so she didn't i guess she just had them all stored away until the right person came on that and they fit someone's description yeah and another thing is she held kids for longer than she needed to because she wanted to be able to charge more so she told them i'm doing the perfect placement process for you and she'd make people wait maybe six seven months even though she's already got this kid that she's got in mind and then she sends the kid with the family so she can charge more for that placement fee Mm-hmm. Are you going to get into what happened to the kids that didn't get placed? I, there's, a, well, we're kind of getting, going to get into it right now. Okay. So, um, kids drank spoiled milk because there was no refrigeration and kids got no medical treatment, even for contagious diseases. And in the book, they said that a syphilis like run rampant and they just didn't treat them for it. So some boarding mothers who were sent to watch over the children would send babies behind George's back to the hospital, but it was often too late and it meant repercussions for the boarding mothers, and they were terrified of Georgia. So even if they did get medical care and they got back and they're like, okay, you need to take these antibiotics, she would order nurses and boarding mothers to stop giving babies medical treatment. She just didn't want it. Wait, and why again? 19- did she give a reason? She just didn't want to spend the money oh, on it. Oh, to wanna... cut costs, basically. I mean, not yeah. that it's right, but that's why... Yeah. By 1932, Memphis had the highest death rate of infants because of Georgia. Hospitals dedicated special wards for the children she sold because they were just so sick and dying. And one even opened in L.A. specifically for her children as well, not just Memphis because of all the babies she sent to celebrities. How does this continue to happen? You know, like I'm sure people receiving her children aren't getting them in healthy conditions. And they were just okay Mm -hmm. with it. And then they open a ward just for her and her sickly children, and no one said a thing. Well, I, it's just because she was hidden behind so many powerful people. I mean, her father was a judge. She knew judges. She was in hand with the cops. She was in hand with yeah. the government. So Celebrities, too. Yeah. Often babies died before arriving at their homes and shortly after being placed due to their health and mistreatment. It's estimated that 500 babies died in her care, but it is also believed that it's many, many more. And in the book, there was a really hard winter that hit, and within a month, I think like 50 babies died off the bat. So it was just awful. And with all the deaths, Elmwood Cemetery often became used because it was so close to Georgia's home, and she tried to but she did try to conceal this. A reporter from the press seminar who is where the friend used to work where they would send the Christmas ads. Mm-hmm said that they spotted someone one night burying something in Georgia's backyard that looked to be a baby and they believed was a baby, just right in her own backyard. Someone someone even told the reporter for that newspaper that she worked with the local Thomas Cemetery to cremate babies, quote, getting rid of evidence, a grave is proof. Wow. 
I can't imagine. I mean, I don't know. You know this, but I wonder where her old home was. And if it's just like fucking haunted with baby ghost. Oh, where her parents lived? Or where she oh, where she buried or I guess the where she had all these children and were burying these children. Well Oh sorry, I was drinking water. Um well she didn't have the babies like the children at her home. They were the boarding that's, homes, yeah, but I guess to hide it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a picture of her house. I don't have the address on me, but I'm sure if someone wants to do an investigation, I'm sure you'd catch some spooky shit there for sure. Now, if you thought you couldn't get any worse, because at this point, it's like, how much worse can you get? Like I said, I warned you guys. So now we're going to talk about the sexual assault and the physical abuse that a lot of kids dealt with. Um, I try not to go into details, but I kind of want to discuss what these kids went through. And these are all firsthand quotes. So I, I tried to keep oh, wait, hold on a scripters out. <laughs> that Whataburger. <laughs> can you eat? <laughs> I don't eat while recording on purpose, I promise. Are you going to be able to eat through this? I know, you got... I was trying to get it before the bad parts. Like, this part. Probably not. I'm probably just going to stare at it. Yeah, this is the worst time to eat. This was the exact worst moment. (laughs) (sighs) I'm ready. Alright. So, as I was saying, I'm not going to go into details, but I do kind of want to you guys to understand what these people went through so just trigger warning an anonymous 55 year old man from memphis was quoted in the daily pantograph that him and his twin brother were molested at eight years old quote we remember being in a big bed stripped naked georgia tan and some other people were there reaching for us and kissing us and touching us where we shouldn't have been touched so it sounded like she was throwing parties oh my god yeah, I'm not going to lie. I didn't expect that, surprisingly. I don't know how I didn't expect that. I was thinking the people that she adopted to were part of some disgusting ring. But it so happens that she was the one. She was involved in it, yeah. Oh, my God. Another victim who was five years old at the time told told Barbara Raymond, who wrote The Baby Thief, that sexual abuse was presented to children as your favor. So I guess it was supposed to be looked at as like this fun treat for them or some bullshit like that. And they told Barbara that the abuse happened in a beautiful, huge, stunning room. I just remember being told to sit in her lap. I keep trying to block it out. It causes me a lot of problems. You won't find any healthy adults who went through there. Mm -hmm. And along with the sexual abuse, there was also physical. And this is only just one little tidbit. So Mary, another anonymous victim who was very young at the time, recalled being beaten in a bathroom with a wooden spoon. She squatted over me and gouging me. She seemed like a giant. She was sadistic, evil. I thought of her as the devil. So she was just terrible. So just terrible. Women, there were a bunch of women abusing these children too. And I'm assuming men. I don't know who exactly was in the room. Oh, sure, definitely. Um, oh, it just made me think of something, but I lost it. I think it, I forgot what I was reading. But talking about how, like, the percentages of women offenders are smaller and the reason for that. But I can't remember why I was reading that and where I got that from now. Um, yeah. Anyways, continue. Um, now, I know that was all a fucking bummer, but we're almost done, I promise. And I could keep going on and on of firsthand accounts and everything that happened. I mean, there was even an account of 
Georgia sending a bunch of kids down to a basement and some came back and some didn't and kids didn't know if they were being sold or what happened in the basement why kids never returned so it's just all very sealed and veiled and who the fuck knows what happened to those kids um but I wanted to leave you guys on a good note so I'm going to end this how it ended and then I want to get into like a first-hand account that does have a happy ending so um, in 1948, George Crumble, sorry, George Crumb crumbled and Governor Gordon Browning went into power in 1948 and went after Georgia Tan. And Georgia at this point had been diagnosed with late stage uterine cancer, which seems kind of ironic. Um, and <laughs> Browning appointed a special investigator to look into Georgia. The case was announced in September 1950 regarding just selling the children, not her other offenses, unfortunately. And even worse, she died a month less like a month before justice could be left. Oh, sorry. I hate that. That is my biggest pet peeve about life is when, yeah, people end up dying before they serve or before anything happens to them. Yeah, so I screwed that up. But the case was announced, and then she died less than a month later of that being announced. So she got out of everything mm -hmm. and after her death justice kelly stepped down and avoided prosecution until after her death in 1955 so what the fuck you know okay so now that that's done with georgia tan is dead let's well she's she's dead but you didn't or did anything say what caused the change and what led people or what led these politicians to finally go after her and in this fucking nightmare I think just once she was gone, it, she didn't have those influences anymore. And I, at that point, a lot of people knew what she was doing. And a lot of people knew it was wrong. So she was just hiding behind all those higher-ups for the time being. Because after that, normal adoption came into play. And normal foster homes and normal orphanages, it no longer followed what she did. So by that point, everyone knew it was wrong. I'm just curious. I know it going deep deeper into this would probably cause a type of uh, type um cause an episode three on this but, I, I i thought uh, we were gonna have to do an episode three i cut out so much yeah just to explore you know that social shift of babies being glamorized and popular and a hot commodity to what the fuck is wrong with this and and yeah. i don't know i don't know now i'm gonna have to dive into the hole later <laughs> Well, even now today, babies are so glamorized. That's the first thing to go from fosters and adoptions. Babies are always first. Yeah, Babies definitely. are just that hot commodity. Well, just the point that they were advertised in newspapers the way that they yeah. were. Mm -hmm. Like puppies. They were advertised like puppies. And that would not fly today. Like no, it cannot. definitely not. So yeah. just like where that shift happened and when adoption agencies who were legit like how they came into power and things like that but like i said that would be a completely different episode <laughs> yeah. i mean i we could always do like a mini on it but i just i had to cut out so much because yeah. we would have been here we're already at like 40 minutes so. mm -hmm. <laughs> all right so this article is straight straight from the orlando sentinel um and it's a first-hand account pretty much so you know i don't really like to change those too much because i want to keep the person's story together I just changed a little bit, not too much, and I'm going to try and get through this without crying because after five reads, like, I still get teary-eyed, so you know how I get with these. <laughs> All right. 
So in the spring of 1946, Alma Seipel, in her early 20s, moved with their infant daughter and two-year-old son, Robert, to Memphis. Seipel's boyfriend, Julius John Talos, had just shipped out to Panama, being in the military. They planned to be married as soon as possible. By the time Irma was born on August 27, 1945, they had been together for two years. We were so crazy about each other, it didn't matter if we were married or not, Seipel recalls. In Memphis, Seipel and her two children settled into an oil-heated one-room apartment. After six, six weeks after they moved in, a woman from Tennessee's Children's Home Society, an organization with impeccable reputation for finding homes for orphans, came to an apartment building saying she was investigating an alleged child abuse case involving a neighbor. Do you have any idea who that woman was? Was that her? Was that the wonderful tan we've been talking about? It sure was. So the next day, the woman returned, this time striking up a conversation with Seipel, asking her about her baby's father. Then the woman looked at Irma, who had a runny nose, and said, Your baby's sick, isn't she? She should get a checkup. Seipel explained that she had no money for a doctor, so the woman, who identified herself as Georgia Tan, offered to take the child to the Memphis General Hospital. Looking back, Seifel wondered how she could have been so naive. Quote, how did I mess up so bad? I guess she knew the dumb ones. <sighs> Still, she had been worried about her baby's health, and she'd assumed she would go with them to the hospital, so she signed a piece of paper. When Tan told her it would be impossible for her to get, go along, Seifel remembers, I had a weird feeling, but I thought, well, you gotta trust somebody. The next day, Seifel went to the hospital children's ward, where she found Irma jumping up and down in her bed. But when she told a nurse she wanted to see her baby, the nurse said, You don't have a baby in there. Those children belong to the Children's Home Society. Over the next few days, Seipel's calls to Tans went unanswered. Finally, Seipel said Tan called back and said, Irma died of pneumonia. Of course, I went into hysterics. When Seipel said she wanted to make arrangements for the burial, Tan rebuffed her, saying, I took it all myself and the state put her away. Don't worry about it. At that point, Seipel said, I guess I went crazy. She took her son Robert to Ohio to stay with her mother, and she returned to Memphis. I wanted to find the grave. I was half out of my mind. She found no grave. Her calls to the Tennessee Children's Home Society yielded only information that, quote, the case is closed. She, she was told that Tan, quote, had nothing to say to you. Like, I can't even imagine what that's like. Yeah, what the fuck? I would be in hysterics, too. One day you see your child jumping, the next you're told she died. It's just... It's horrible. And no one's giving you any answers. Yeah, they're just giving you the runaround or just not answering you back. With their son, Seipel returned to Kentucky, and letters from Irma's father in Panama were fewer and fewer. Quote, he worshipped Irma, she said. I couldn't, he just couldn't deal with her death. So their marriage, just their relationship just crumbled. Wait, so she, did, I, she did tell him everything that happened? Yeah, no, she told him everything and just communication stopped which you're away in panama in the military and you find out your child mm -hmm. I, I mean i don't blame him but damn that sucks wait a second you said this was happy I, we well, were ending on a happy note i'm not <laughs> happy will, right don't now worry. just wait <laughs> in 1982 she sent a, a query to the bureau of vital statistics in nashville the answer came back there was no death certificate for irma talos after that, she ran into a brick wall. The district attorney in Memphis couldn't help. The Tennessee Department of Human Services couldn't help. Then, by chance, Seipel happened to tune into Unsolved Mysteries. Like the TV show? The TV show. What year was this? Uh, 1983. So she went... I'm so confused. What year Don't... did Tan die? She died in 1950. Okay, so she's gone... 
this long, knowing, not knowing where her baby was. Yeah, her baby was taken in 1946. It's now 1982. I'm sorry, 1983. So that's 43 years later. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I thought this was, you know, four years apart, maybe at most. Oh, Dakota didn't give me ketchup. Yeah, so no, this is 43 years later. So on December 13, 1983, while flipping through channels, Seiple happened upon NBC's Unsolved Mysteries. She sat forward on her chair, transfixed as Robert Stack told the story of the late Georgia Tan, the infamous Tennessee social worker who made a fortune running a black market baby adoption ring in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Seiple recognized Tan immediately. That face, the air of authority. When they showed her picture, she said, I let out a scream. I said, that's the woman that took Irma. I can't even imagine what kind of feeling that is. So viewers in the episode were searching for their birth parents or parents were looking for their children and were advised to contact contact Tennessee Rights to Know, a volunteer agency in Memphis that reunites families separated by adoption. On January 3rd, Seipel wrote to the address, and that was the first step in the seven-month search. In Tennessee, Denny Glad, president of the Right to Know, received Seipel's inquiry and located Irma's adoption records, which gave the name of the adoptive parents, but the records did not indicate the state in which the parents lived. Seipel then contacted Marilyn Miller, an independent search consultant in Los Angeles, on July 27th, and on August 3rd, Miller came back with good news. She had the name and the address of Seiple's daughter. She was able to tell her she was reg- she was a registered nurse, married, and living in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. But the phone number was unlisted. That day, Seiple sent a basket of daisies and carnations to her daughter with a, with a guardly written note that read, Please call regarding family matters. Irma, now Sandra Krimble, was puzzled. She knew, new one in Calif- she knew no one in California. Kimbrell called the California number the next day. The disciples came home and picked up the message on the answering machine. Quote, I could feel my blood pressure shoot up. Now that she had a number, what was she going to tell, say to this woman, a stranger? So she called her back. Hello, Sandra, she said. You know you're adopted? Yes, she knew. Well, this is your birth mother. Disciples says she screamed and she immediately wanted to know what happened, how and what I look like, how many brothers and sisters she had. And after 44 years of searching for her daughter, she found her. Oh, my God. God, <laughs> I know that makes me want to cry I know. too. So, George, okay, give me a second. <laughs> yeah, no, you're fine. So, Georgia is said to have illegally sold over five thousand children, and so to this day, many are still looking for their families. So, you can still find the Unsolved Mysteries episode. I think last I saw it, it was on YouTube. I didn't fully watch it, but it's still out there, so you guys can definitely watch it. There's articles, I think from people with people still searching for family members um but there have been many cases of people being reunited so georgia tan unsolved mysteries episode because unsolved mysteries i believe the original you can find on netflix i think they put it up yeah or it's hbo or one of those i know it's something i have which is either netflix hulu or amazon that is so crazy yeah so and there's a bunch of like youtube things on her and all that but that show when after they aired it they were just overwhelmed with how many inquiries they got and how many letters and how many 
just calls trying to find their families and stuff. I I see LA Times together again. After 44 tortured years, a mother finds her... Yeah, that's the one I just read. Oh, that's the one that you just read? Okay, Mm -hmm. I didn't remember you say LA Times. Oh, uh, it was Um, from another one, but I know the LA Times also did an episode, uh, an mm -hmm. article on it, so... Wild. Oh my god. I mean, I'm... It's so awful that these families had to go through that, but at least some are being reunited. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, where's the happy medium? It's so difficult to adopt nowadays. Mm -hmm. I know the system is fixed for um, children to be reunited with their families, and maybe it's because of her that they... They have that in place. And I I don't know. Sometimes I feel like being reunited with a family isn't always the best case, Mm -hmm. depending on the circumstance. Like, that should not be the goal all the time. Like, the goal should be dependent on the situation. Yeah, because before I decided on mortuary, I thought I wanted to go into child protective services. And one of the very first things I read is their goal is to reunite every child back with their families. And I don't agree with that, which is why I was like, I, mm-hmm. this is not something I can do for sure. Um, yeah, that would be so tough. So, yeah, there's, there's kinks in every system and everything. And it's just finding the happy medium. But unfortunately, with things like this, people can pretend to be the perfect family and they're not and the child is going through a bunch of horrible shit that no one knows about so or the system put in place that or the system that is putting them in families obviously was the problematic was problematic Mm -hmm. um i don't unfortunately there's no way to track now those families and the success rates or anything like that because it didn't seem like it if they did have a paper trail, there'd be no way to quantify any of that. Yeah. And plus, they didn't care. They just wanted to make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. An easy buck, which they did. Oh, yeah. They made millions. So. She did not give a shit about those kids. No. But even then, a lot of people back then didn't. Like, with the baby farms, the orphan trains, just, it was kind of like, let's get these kids placed somewhere. I don't care. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now it's so difficult for people to adopt. Like, oh, yeah. I've known two professors, extremely intelligent, extremely, you know, able and capable of raising a child. And they've, like, it took them years. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, gay families, too, that want children and they're like, oh, you're gay, you can't have a child. What are you thinking? Like, oh, what the God, fuck? Yeah. Like, do you want to keep these kids in a system? for all their life like and then they get older and then they can't stay in that system and then where do they go it's just there needs to be that medium that that i don't want it to be easy either like it shouldn't be easy but it shouldn't be so difficult i always tell matt i see those things of like this woman killed her child or this and that and i'm like there should be like a test before you have a kid like it's so hard for you to adopt a kid I mean, even dog adoptions are so difficult. If you're trying to adopt a dog, you have a hole in your fence, you're not going to get the dog, but you can just bop out a baby. Mm-hmm. I know that's never going to happen. I know that would be a huge, big old fi- fiasco that's never going to happen. But, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, just anybody can have a baby, but 
that is so life-changing and such a big commitment. Like, the people trying to adopt genuinely want to have kids. Mm -hmm. And there are people out there who have kids and don't give a shit. Yeah, Yeah, that's another thing. If you don't, if your child, you know, is in the system and you don't make an effort to see them, to visit them, to make time with them, why are you going to give that child back? That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that's why I don't agree with the goal of reuniting the child with the family, no matter what. Like, there needs to be some conditions. Mm -hmm, For sure. So, yeah, that's my bummer of an episode. (laughs) Man, we... We've been on a theme here. And it is... I feel like it's been relevant to what's going on in the news Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, I... Don't oh yeah, I did tell you about my friend who like outs pedophiles yes. every day on Facebook. Well, she finally created a Facebook page dedicated to Limping that. that shit. <laughs> and it's for it's like I'm trying to think. It's yeah, I'll link you to it. But it's it's very triggering also because a lot of people are coming out with their stories and in that Facebook page, a lot of people are just finding empowerment in sharing their experiences with others and letting them know, like, here are the warning signs. Yeah. Like, literally save your children. Yeah. So, so it's in the news, and I know people do have that fear. Like, I've been, we've been, we've been talking about, um, but it's good to know the history of actual baby yeah. snatchers, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. I didn't know about this either, and like, and all her stuff is so hard to dig up. Like that whole second portion of this, I had to dig through Baby Thief and other podcasts and stuff because it's just it's hidden. So there's very vague articles it, on it, yeah. but they don't go into the full depth of what she actually did. So. Mm-hmm. It's scary how much can be hidden when you have so much mm-hmm. influence. Mm-hmm. And how much power someone can have. Yeah. And what... It makes me think anything is possible. Yeah. And yeah. what I also didn't like with her research is a lot of the names of people that she worked with or that purchased babies are hidden. Like, you can't find anything. Mm-hmm. So... Oh, yeah. So, I, I hope every baby had a great, wonderful life and childhood, but I don't think that happened at all so i know big yeah <laughs> anyways anything new with you since oh. we're throwing this at the end <laughs> uh, I, I started school again i was gonna that's what i was gonna do i was gonna ask you about school <sighs> i'm stressed it's <laughs> but but I was nervous to bring up school because I didn't know if that was going to brighten the mood any. <laughs> right? Oh, man. Well, the department... Oh, I already told you this, but for anyone listening, the department changed the rules on our grading for the mortuary program. So if you score anything less than a 74 on assignments, it's counted as a zero. If you score anything less than 84% on any test exams, it is considered a zero. So why? Why do they do that? Because I guess people were change? scoring really bad on the state board exam to get licensed, but I don't feel like that's up to the school to dictate that now they're changing their grading system. Like if we don't put the effort for a state exam, that's on us, not the fucking school to 
because people who don't test well or who have a hard time studying or it's mm-hmm. it's hard for them so i'm stressed i i'm not i'm glad i passed accounting <laughs> the first semester because i would have never passed it if that was the case so uh, and what's well hmm. Oh, what? And what scared what me shitless was that one of my teachers was like, if you score 100% on every single assignment, but you get to the final exam and you score a 73%, you're going to fail the class. What the fuck? Yeah. How is that even okay? Who can I write a letter to? <laughs> <laughs> Who can I pretend to be? Yeah, so I'm like, you. what if you have a bad day on your final exam and you miss one fucking question and that's your whole semester worth of work just gone that's ridiculous yeah <laughs> that is not okay especially given the circumstance of zoom and covid you know covid and learning you like on top you have to learn how to do school differently yeah so well this is for all of us listening or for all of y'all listening send sam some good vibes i'd appreciate it <laughs> yeah I know you can do it. I know you're super smart. You can do it. It just adds an extra layer of stress. I know. My friend, she's in a nursing program. She's like, yeah, we got to score B minus on everything. I'm like, you get me. You understand. (laughs) Wait, so it's not just your program, but a lot of other programs too? Well, her nursing program, she goes to a different school. Oh, it's nursing. I know nursing is very, like, strict on everything, Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) But, um, I'm trying to think. Um... Yeah, I don't have any other news. No, this is just not a happy episode. <laughs> no. I mean, we're already at an hour, so it's okay. That's true. And I'm sure we can just warn everybody, this is not a happy episode. No. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> um, But yeah, no, anything else I say is not going to make an impact at all <laughs> the mood of this episode Same. all the other things that i have could be offline because they're not happy <laughs> happy either <laughs> all right guys well thank you so much for tuning into this bummer of an episode um i promise my next episode is going to be a like a fun one one of my like cryptidy ones so you can look forward to that Ooh, but that'll okay. be like a month from I'm... now because <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll make sure to um, throw some fun in it too next week. Definitely. Can't wait. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in for episode 47. You can find us on all our socials at Booze Podcast, spelled B-O-O-O-B-O-O-Z. <laughs> I thought I put too many O's. I There's think only you two did. O's. Did you put three O's? <laughs> It's, it just kept on going, I think. B O O O O. Spelled B O O Z P O D C A S T. Yeah. I'm like sounding it out. Like, yeah, she spelled it right. Oh my God. I promise I'm not this slow. I promise I'm somewhat intelligent. You're the smartest person I know. You just can't spell our podcast name. <laughs> I just, I cannot spell period. <laughs> All right, guys. Nervous. Well, we'll catch you next time. Stay boozy. Bye. Bye.